Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 87. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, uh, this week we're doing a little variation. Um, we haven't really done anything like this before, but we wanted to kind of do a deep dive or maybe even a shallow dive on a book that we both read. And that book is Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. So uh, this is, uh, we're trying something new, maybe a, a book report, we'll call it, um, a book discussion. Uh, if you have read the book, uh, we'd be interested in hearing your feedback on it. And if you hadn't, um, I think maybe we'll go through it and then talk about whether we recommend reading it or not at the end. Uh, so just a quick summary of what the book is like. It is a, the format is a business fable. So that is, if you've never encountered a book like this or don't know what that means, it's a book that has a lesson, has some ideas that it's trying to uh, impart to the reader. But rather than just kind of uh, listing them out um, blandly and, and talking about them, it presents the ideas in the form of a story. Um, so, you know, characters, a plot, conflict, you know, resolution, um, and along the way, the characters learn about the lessons that the author is trying to teach. So um, the plot for this book is that a new CEO takes over a, a highly touted but a troubled startup. Um, she's an expert in building top performing executive teams, and she observes the executive team uh, for a couple weeks and realizes that the main problem with the organization is that the top executive team is not actually operating as a team. So we experience her uh, her team, that those top level VPs, uh, learning the lessons that she has to teach about operating as an effective team uh, through uh, us, the audience or readers, um, sitting in through on a series of offsite meetings, uh, regular staff meetings, and and one on ones like in the hallways and and uh, kind of sitting down in restaurants. So, um, you know, as that happens, you know, there's people come and go, um, and uh, miraculously the business does well. So, um, you know, and during that, you know, again, the, uh, the five dysfunctions of a team, the one in the title, uh, are revealed by the CEO uh, to that top executive team. Um, so, uh, Nick, maybe you can talk about what those five dysfunctions are. Sure. Uh, real quick, I'll also say that this is available on Audible. That's how John and I consumed it in this case. And if you want a free copy and are not an Audible subscriber, feel free to DM us. Be happy to share that with you. By the way, the voice of the British executive is actually played by John White. Keep that in mind. <laughs> I bet you didn't know that. 
<laughs> you know, my sister actually does a really good uh, received pronunciation uh, British accent. Nice. <laughs> so back to the five dysfunctions. What exactly are they? Well, the first one is absence of trust. Can't be open with your teammates because you don't trust one another. Fear of conflict. You are afraid that there's going to be some kind of massive disagreement because of something you say. So you Lack avoid of... you avoid uh, conflict in your mm -hmm. team meetings and with each other, right? Right, and nothing gets accomplished. A lack of commitment. Now, this is really more of a lack of commitment to the goals of the team. Mm -hmm. And then avoidance of accountability. So people are not holding other people accountable for what they should be doing as a member of the team. And then inattention to results. So again, the results to be achieved by the team and maybe not putting them as high of a priority as you should. The team results over your personal results. Correct. Right. Okay. Very cool. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, spoiler alert, I, I like the book, um, but I have to say, like, maybe the first thing that I want to talk about is that I'm always suspicious of management fables. Um, and, and I'll state that like right up front, right? The author has control over the plot. So the lessons that are trying to be taught are going to fit the situation exactly. Um, and they're going to be, you know, applicable in a way that maxim maximally teaches the lessons that the author is trying to, um, put forward as facts, right? So in this case, Patrick Lencioni is trying to say, these are the five, the five dysfunctions that fate that um, teams suffer from, um, you know, they're almost like there can't be others and there, you know, there could be fewer, right. But there can't be more. Um, so I don't know that, that I think is just something that anytime I read a book that's structured this way to teach me lessons, you know, I, it, it is something that I have that I'm, I'm suspicious of. That's all. I want to call that out. How about you, Nick? I think that in books like this, teaching lessons through stories is very helpful because we can oftentimes relate to the characters, but we do have to practice our willing suspension of disbelief because it is fiction. Right, right. In, in some cases, you know, the outcomes seem magical. I didn't think it seemed too magical in this particular story as maybe compared to others. Right. I think maybe... You know, the book isn't very long. It's it's just over 200 pages. Um, there's not really enough time in the book. Or the book isn't long enough to kind of get into the details of solving the problems, of really digging into the conflicts, um, really getting deep background on the different characters and understanding how, you know, the the revelations of these dysfunctions affected them and, and how conflicts were worked out among the team. Um, there's some of that, but it, it doesn't go very, it's very shallow, right? It's third person, omniscient, a little bit of omniscient, not super omniscient. Um, and most of the omniscience is fr from the point of view of the CEO, right? Like, like you get into her head a little bit, but not, I don't really remember any of the other characters, feelings and emotions being revealed by the uh, the narrator you get a little bit here and there but not near as much as the ceo like you said yeah 
you know, actually, now that I think about it, I realize like, I think most of, I think a lot of the reason why I don't like this style of book, or I don't, that I'm suspicious of this style of, of storytelling is based on other books that I've read. Like the, I don't know if you had to go through this, but like in the late nineties, there's this book called who moved my cheese. And, uh, it was this like business fable about, you know, like change basically. Like if you depend on, if you're a mouse or a tiny little person who eats cheese, then you depend on cheese being there. And if you run out of cheese and you're not ready for change, then you'll perish. Something like that. Like it was just this like really uh, frustrating book to read. It seemed like really profound if you'd just never encountered like a simile or a metaphor before. <laughs> and also I didn't like Lord of the Flies. I thought that was, you know, it was, that's the, the first, the earliest example I can think of, of, of an author going, you know what, I'm going to write a story that English students will have to learn the concept of a, uh, a metaphor from, or, uh, symbolism. The and, if, and if you're out there and you did move John's cheese, please tweet or DM at Nerd Journey so we can figure that out. <laughs> right. Um, also, I know we've talked about this before. The we've talked about uh, the goal and the Phoenix Project, and those are both business fable books, right? And I was trying to think about why I didn't react as negatively as I did. Um, I didn't have that like emotional reaction as much against those books. And, and I think I, I was thinking about it, it, those books, um, were teaching in a similar manner, like business fable, but they're also teaching like Socratically, like using the Socratic method, like asking questions and forcing you as a reader to try to like solve the, the questions that were being asked, like along with the main characters. So when you know, things were revealed, um, or, you know, lessons were learned, you felt like you were learning the lessons for real along with the characters. Like, and this book was told from the point of view of the person who knew all the, the answers and was revealing them to a team that, ne that needed to learn them. Right. So yeah, that's it was a great a, point. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I, I still, I, I think we, I don't remember if we talked about this, um, on mic, but I, I still felt a little bit uneasy about both those books too. I, th I think I mentioned that as like, there's the like magical, like elder who drops in on the, on the main character and reveals a couple nuggets and then disappears into the ether and leaves the main character to struggle through and finally get a revelation like that. Mm-hmm. I yep. think is the structure of both of those books, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, that was, uh, that was my reaction. I don't know. Do you have as much of an issue with that? No, due to willing suspension of disbelief. Um, I'm okay. Sure. Sure. I don't, it doesn't trigger me as heavily, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think now that I'm, I'm thinking about it out loud, here um while we're recording maybe it's also just because 
you know, I'm, it feels like I'm trying, like the author's trying to get me to accept these lessons as real, this, this formulation as the truth, instead of as an interesting way to describe like problems, like one framework, one possible framework for dysfunction on a team that might not be, you know, applicable in all situations. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's it. Maybe if I just accepted that it was an interesting framework that, you know, another, uh, arrow in the quiver tool in the toolbox, then, uh, then I wouldn't have had as much of an emotional reaction. I just approach it as, you know, I'm going to listen to this and what can I take from it that might help me do something better than I'm doing it now. Sure. Yeah. Cool. All right. So let's move on. Uh, how applicable are the lessons that the author is trying to teach to you? How, how, how applicable were these lessons? If you say you, you're trying to become a frontline manager and you were reading books about management, like, do you think Nick, like this was a useful book in that context to read? Mm, to some extent, yes, but not entirely. So it's not apples to apples. You know, we were looking at an executive leadership team managed by the CEO and they're all working toward results of the company. Mm -hmm. They each have different projects, each taking on a different part. But if I'm a frontline manager, yes, I'm responsible for a certain team of people, mm -hmm. um, however small. I wouldn't say that in all cases that I'm going to be working in a necessary harmony with all my peers, you know, to where we're going to have to hold each other accountable for the results that the team is driving forward. You know, think of think of a frontline manager at a at a shop that has a decent size IT organization. Mm -hmm. So the help desk manager. Yes, everybody wants to close tickets as soon as possible and provide great customer service, but does the does the tier 1 support person hold the tier 2 support person accountable and vice versa? Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. not. Do we do we have meetings where we talk about is everybody on the team, even though you're doing sl something slightly different, on the same page? Do you understand what everyone else does? I, I feel like maybe that's good, but that it doesn't always happen. I guess not. Not on every team is everybody working on like what you could regard as a single project, right? where everybody is working on different aspects of that project. Like in this case, the executive team's project is the success of the company. Like that's, that's the project that they're trying to work on. Um, so, you know, obviously they have their individual areas of expertise, you know, sales or customer success or research and development or marketing. Um, but they're all like that aspect of the project in, in your help desk example, like if you have a team of people answering the phones for the help desk, there's not really a single like project that you can maybe point to as, as the project that everybody's working on together, right? Maybe like 
high customer satisfaction with help desk. <laughs> um, but is, meaning is, SLAs. Is yeah, I don't know. Like maybe, you know, maybe that's just, maybe we're wrong. And, you know, somebody with help desk experience can, can, you know, tell us, oh no, you know, this is the way that help desks, you know, ideally high performing help desks work or customer success centers or uh, customer service centers. I'd be interested in hearing from a listener if, if you've ever been in that situation. Yeah. And did your manager do it the same way the CEO did this in the book? Ah, uh, yeah, right. Um, kind of uh, make sure that everybody trusted each other and was um, able to be vulnerable and expose vulnerability, um, promote uh, creative conflict, you know, like open... Uh, healthy debate and then uh, commit at the end in the direction that was chosen by the team or by the, uh, the leadership um, and then hold everybody accountable, like all the peers holding each other accountable and uh, pull on in the same direction to achieve that, that singular metric of success. Um, the other thing that popped into my mind, I mean, this isn't maybe, maybe you and I work in, in uh, very different situations than the rest of the world. But like I work, you know, on a team that in general doesn't work on the same project. We, we do have some overlap, you know, as customer engineers at Google, we tend to work on, uh, on customer opportunities like one at a time. Sometimes we bring in one of our peers, that, that certainly does happen. Um, I think that when I was at VMware, that happened less often. It was more likely that I, as a you know pre-sales technical person, was partnered with a salesperson, and if the specific opportunity had like a specialty product, then there, the specialty salesperson was there, and the specialty uh, pre-sales technical resource was there. So that would be like maybe four different people, and each of those people had different managers, right? So it was like a much more of a collected team with like kind of a matrix relationship of you know where the reporting was and and everybody's manager holding the team accountable on that opportunity yeah that, that feels atypical right <laughs> like not mm -hmm. everybody works in a situation like that yeah i would agree it's a similar story yeah via where now i would say you know maybe in in information technology you might be working on a project where uh, you're you're working in like on a on a master project, like say implementing an ERP solution, and you have to work across team silos. Like there's a, a storage team with a storage manager, and a security team with a security manager, and a compute team with a compute manager, and you know maybe one or two people from each team is all, are all on that same master project. So that might be. A little bit more like our day to day. Yeah, I think so, so. So maybe it's not as not as odd as as I'm thinking. But I don't know. You know, it'd be interesting to hear from other people. You know, what their management situations and project situations are. If they're, you know, they're with a singular manager and in a position to hold their peers accountable. I suppose you know that that kind of leadership and isn't necessarily 
dependent on a single manager, right? It's still a team. Right. I think we're thinking of it as, you know, the book defined team as these people that reported up to a single manager. Right. Maybe, maybe that's again, a weakness that I'm identifying with the business fable that it, it posits like a singular situation. So it's a little bit more difficult to generalize, you know, the, the lessons to a situation that is not the one that's presented in the book. Sure. I don't know. Maybe, maybe if we look at some highlights from the book, that'll help. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about highlights. So one of the things I thought was interesting, and this goes back to some of the things that Brad Pinkston shared with us about his change in management role. The new CEO came in and decided to take four weeks to just observe and understand what was going on at the company. Of course, in her role, she talked to people at different levels, but she didn't actually seek to change or really do anything until after she felt like she really understood what was happening. I've seen managers do this when they first start in different departments, and I think that's smart. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. Um, Not just go charging in and change a bunch of things without understanding how they work ahead of time. And if you remember Brad saying something to the extent of career conversations were really important to him, Mm -hmm. but he didn't feel like he could really have one of those with his reports until he got to know them better and understood who they were as a person. So he was delaying those for a while until he felt like he made it to that point. Right. Earn trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this, I thought it was interesting if you paid close attention to the way the CEO controlled her tone in some of these tense conversations, you know, she, it's hard to do, but it almost seemed like she was really able to keep her emotions in check and to keep those from driving the things that she said and the way that she said them, because, you know, it's her first few at-bats with this team and directing them, if you will. Yeah, I will say this. There was a lot of tense situations in the book. Like, it was almost like a series of tense situations. Some breakthroughs and then some, you know, retrenchment, uh, you know, more tense situations. So I think you're right. And And also I would say, you know, not everything went perfectly. Like there were situations where the CEO like explicitly felt like she made a mistake. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so maybe I was being too harsh in my initial judgments, but yeah, I, I think like that control, especially knowing when you're provoking a difficult conversation and things are tense for other people so knowing that if they lash out, like lashing out is a very likely possibility of the situation that you're setting up. So being able to control your reaction to that, because it's, it is a difficult process. Yeah. Remaking a team is a difficult process. Certainly. And part of that process is also conflict, which was spoken of in the book. But one of the inner struggles the CEO had was figuring out if she should actually stop a conflict that was happening in the in the room where they were meeting or really letting it go on and letting the people resolve it themselves because it would be more beneficial for the team than her stopping it or solving it for them. Yeah, and the same went for uh, negative behavior, right? The behaviors that she was trying to um, 
have people not do like one of the main characters uh or one of the characters on the executive team shows contempt for other people by rolling eyes and and uh and other behaviors and uh you know and other people like don't follow through on some of the things that they commit to and it and the ceo doesn't necessarily hold all those people accountable because one of the things that she's trying to teach is the team and the peers holding each other accountable to the behaviors that she's set out right so the leader has said hey these this is what's acceptable this is what we're trying to do and then she's trying to see whether the peers that peer-to-peer accountability will happen yeah you know we said it a little bit before but difficult conversations there were a lot of tense conversations extremely uncomfortable situations that people you know the average person doesn't want to be in and it was obvious that the character portrayed as the CEO had been in these situations before and knew how to handle them it wasn't just oh she's great at difficult conversations it was she's done this before at other places and had things not go well right she had learned from maybe not doing it the right way in the past and in fact this was the reason why she was hired was to was her skill in building these teams and this is the process that she had in building those teams in the past which is um, i think the analogy that's used in the book is like sometimes when you've broken a bone and it's set incorrectly you have to re-break it and sometimes that's that's more painful because you know ahead of time that you're going to have to break it um so yeah very very interesting that what about um the encouraging vulnerability like that is something that happened early on and was a very specific exercise and later on the book i i, I should have said this um the the fable ends and then the kind of more academic um explanation of the the five dysfunctions and 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 uh the model that's uh, being espoused by the author is kind of explained um so the specific exercises or type of exercises to encourage vulnerability are gone through and different people have different reactions to them um not always positive uh, in general it seemed to be like innocuous enough that it was uh, a positive reaction like it wasn't you know reveal a deep dark dark secret that wasn't the exercise it was like um tell us something that maybe other people don't know about you um you know about how you grew up or you know one of the characters was an identical twin that and nobody had known about that even though the team had worked together for a couple of years you know th- those kinds of things yep and this speaks to the importance of vulnerability if you didn't listen to the episodes by Cody de Arkland he's got to be smiling right now as we talk about this so go and listen to those you won't be disappointed it just speaks to the idea that being vulnerable with other people is difficult, it's uncomfortable, but it actually builds rapport between you and them if you can be vulnerable with one another. Yeah, it promotes trust between teammates, right? If you can uh, if you can talk about uh, things, you know, times that you've made mistakes or, or just own up to mistakes that you're making, like in the immediate past, things like that. So the uh, plot point, um, 
a lot of the hard conversations happen at offsite uh, meetings for that executive team. And not all the reactions are, are positive, right? <laughs> no, they're not. Some of the executive team didn't feel like they should have to go to an offsite. They didn't feel like they had the time and they thought that other things were more important and they had to be corrected. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. You know, again, it was that CEO point of view, right? That she had identified the problem as being the executive team not operating as an effective team. And therefore, nothing was more important than fixing that. So, you know, if somebody says, oh, actually, I have like a really important sales call, like then, yeah, you, the sales call might be important, but it's not more important than making sure the team is operating correctly. Yeah, difficult to hear, I'm sure, especially if you're the person who had the conflicting priority. Yeah. And speaking of the CEO knowing what the problem to be solved was, she restated that every time they met. Hey, you know, we have the best executive talent out there, the best products, but yet we're behind our competitors. Why is that? Yeah, every offsite was opened with a restatement of the problem. And the further end of the book they got, like, that was the more and more people were buying into that process of restating it, right? Uh, one of the things that I thought was kind of a breakthrough was the, uh, that one of her points, um, uh, was avoidance of accountability, not, not holding each other accountable. Right. And one of her executives finally calls her out on saying, um, referring to the, the company as you, she kept on talking about, you know, you and the company, you and the company. And the executive says, you know, it would really help me if you stopped saying you and you started saying we, because you're not a consultant here. You're the CEO. Did that yeah. affect you as much as it affected me? The same. Yeah. Same. Just little words can demonstrate how much you care. Right. And we don't think about it enough. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that same, one of those same folks in the room said that didn't understand why consensus was considered bad if mm -hmm. everyone on the team agreed on something. Oh yeah, that's right. Consensus bad. And, and that goes very much against what we're taught, right? In general, like you get everybody's agreement and buy into something, right? Isn't that the way to, to go to like get a team moving in the same direction? Mm -hmm. But, but the author felt like that, that, that was not the case. Right. Um, and I, I think, you know, there, he's talking specifically about difficult decisions and difficult situations, right? Yes. Because, you know, we can, we can agree to all agree to go to the same restaurant. Like that's low stakes when it's high stakes and people have, you know, differing opinions, like strongly differing opinions. How do you really get to consensus ever? Actually, if you do all agree on what should be a really tough decision, like it actually popped into my mind, you know, does that mean that you don't actually have enough people who think in different enough ways in the room to make that decision, to, to pose all the, the different points of view that should be posed? And well, I, my thought is if you all agree, then why didn't you already do it? <laughs> that's another good point. Yeah. And that kind of 
leads to the next um, interesting point. Uh, this was just a phrase that one of the characters uh, stated, um, which was disagree then commit, right? So really what you want is uh, conflict, like healthy conflict within the team when making difficult decisions. And you want people to disagree and state their disagreement and make their case and feel heard. But then at the end, when a decision is made, then everybody commits to that decision. Right, so disagree then commit. What was interesting about that was, um, I you know I I read the book or listened to the book in anticipation of this uh, this um, recording session, and somebody that I spoke to, like completely unrelated to this, uh, said it to me: disagree then commit. And uh, I kind of wondered if he had recently read this book, but I, I didn't ask at the time. <laughs> wow, interesting coincidence. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to highlight was the CEO stressing that the executive team had to be more important than the team that each one of the executives managed. And that was really hard for them to digest and accept. Right. Because I I would guess that, I don't know, I'm not a manager, right? But I would think that most managers probably feel like their duty is to the people they report to and being a steward of, of those people, you know? You mean their reports? The people yes. who report to them? Their reports, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I understand. Like they've built this team and that's their first priority is the team that they've built and managed and who's, you know, people whose career um, they're shepherding and things like that. Right, that's their first team. But really, the um, the author and the the CEO is saying, like, no, no, this is your first team. This executive team is your first team, you know, and uh, that's where your primary loyalty should should reside. And interestingly enough, I thought that that was kind of uh, also a stand-in for your primary loyalty should be to the success of the company not to the success of your department, right? Because mm -hmm. these were all department heads. Um, so I wonder if that was what the statement was or if it was just the really the first team statement. I like the way you said it better. Hmm, okay. Yeah, it's interesting because if you're a middle manager, you're going to have at least two teams, right? You're going to have the team that reports to you and then you have the team of peers and the manager you report to or director or whatever, right? So, you know, is your primary loyalty to the, the team of your peers or the team of your reports? And then what's interesting is that, like, the person who's running that team, is their lo primary loyalty to that team? Or is it to the team above that? Right. And how do you ask yeah. like a group of people to, to have their first loyalty to the team that they're on if the manager of that team has a, a higher loyalty? I don't know if I'm making any sense here. Yeah. Does that mean we go straight to the summary and get out of here? <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's let's have that summary like wrap up discussion rather than getting caught up in We'll call it John White's paradox. Yeah. So ultimately, the hypothesis was 
this would be a good book to read if you were trying to become a manager to learn management lessons. So that's the question that I'll ask you, Nick. Do you think that this was a good book to read if you're trying to become a first-line manager? A first-line manager? Front-line yeah, manager. Yeah, I think there are definitely things you can take from this book. A lot of them we covered in the highlights mm-hmm. about how to handle difficult situations, how to think about certain decisions, how to treat your people, when to correct them, when it in front of everyone else, and when to correct them one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's a lesson that has to be learned very fast. Sure. But I think so. Yeah, I think that the difficulty that I had was that, you know, because of the framing, it seems to be aimed more at executive uh, team creation. But I think a lot of these lessons can be applied to uh, frontline management groups, right? Um, And maybe that answers the second question I was going to ask. Are are there other situations in which this book is worth reading? I I think that even if you are not like a, a, a manager who's in charge of hiring and firing and judging the performance of a group of people, if you are, in fact, leading a team, an informal team or formal team, uh, that's, you know, trying to work on a project, maybe it's, you know, an ad hoc team, and you're in charge of it, like, this is still, you know, some interesting tools to use to promote the high performance of that team, even if you're not hiring and firing those people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So my final question is, uh, do you believe the lessons in this book? Yeah, I think I do. Now, I'll qualify that by saying maybe don't just read this book. If you want to be a manager someday, get your get information from multiple sources because there are a lot of different frameworks and ideas out there. I'm not discounting anything in the book because I think it's fantastic information, but get a sense of what good looks like from other viewpoints. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think my opinion is along the lines of that. I would say this is an interesting framework for team success, right? Um, It doesn't cover everything about being a frontline manager, for example. It doesn't cover hiring or firing or some way to like assess performance, right? But it does cover this idea of building good team practices, um, good team behavior, um, promoting healthy conflict, um, conflict of opinions as opposed to conflict of, of people and personalities. Um, and uh, I think I think that it was, it's a useful framing for team building. Absolutely. One thing I will say, uh, I wanted to add this. If you're looking for other books on management, uh, again, I'm not a manager, but other good books I've read are The Manager's Path by Camille Fournier. Maybe that's another book report for another time. And then Systems of Engineering Management by Will Larson. I liked those. Cool. Are either of those business fables? They are not. Okay. Um, the manager's path actually takes you through the path from individual contributor to like high level manager, uh, to tech lead manager, manager of managers, mm-hmm. you know, manager of directors, manager of different departments that you didn't work in. Pretty interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a, a valuable one to 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 do a report on. Written by a lady who's in the software development world. 
Cool. So cool stuff, I thought. Awesome. Well, anything else before we get out of here? No, sir. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey. All right, farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. If you've uh, read The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, we'd really like to hear your feedback and your reactions to the book. Uh, always uh, interesting to get a discussion going. I'm John White, at The Journeyman. For Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios.